you'd wish to follow in your Bibles with me, I'm going to be reading from 2 Samuel in the 21st chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 21. I'm going to read the first verse, and I've asked uh, Daniel Marsh to pray God's blessing upon this time. 2 Samuel 21. And there was a famine in the lands of, in the days of David three years. Year after year, and David sought the face of Jehovah. And Jehovah said, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he put to death the Gibeonites. Let us pray. Most holy God, thank you for bringing us here today, setting us under your teaching, under your word. Just thank you for giving us a glimpse of your true nature, your true person, God. We just ask your blessing on the, the bringer of your word today. May our heart be firm to what you have us receive. Christ. Amen. We, en we enter this morning into a little bit of a, a different uh, section of 2 Samuel. And if you've ever read it through, I trust that you have, you'll recall when you did that reading that there were a number of things in the uh, 21st through the 24th chapters that sometimes seemed out of place. Uh, sometimes didn't fit with the rest of the narrative that we've been looking at in First and Second Samuel. And this is an occasion of that distinction right here before us in this first verse of chapter 21. One commentator expressed it this way with regard to these distinctions in the next number of chapters saying that chapters 21 through 24 form an appendix to 2 Samuel. They are distinct from the preceding narrative, which continues in 1 Kings chapter 1. They contain six independent sections, only marginally related to each other. Each section includes information and incidents relating to David that the writers thought was helpful or important for their readers to be aware of, but that did not fit in with the natural flow of the main narratives. There's not absolute agreement from every commentator with that particular view, although I believe with what I was able to look at that this is probably the majority view. One, one even referred to uh, these chapters as a general supplement to the history of David's reign. Others hold and suggest that these chapters are an aside or an epilogue. Kyle and Dalich, uh, fairly well-known commentators, they hold to a continuity. And so they, they don't agree with these that I've just mentioned. And as I've said, the majority seem to heartily disagree with the Honorable Kyle and Dalich. But there was a famine in the days of David, three years, year after year. 
And David sought the face of Jehovah, and Jehovah said, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he put to death the Gibeonites. There was a famine for three years. I wonder, as I was reading this initially myself, it brought the question to my mind and even more to my heart. Do natural, national, worldly disasters bring us to seek the face of Jehovah? I think that we all have to admit that oftentimes they don't have that effect upon us. We're so taken up with the, the events that we see before us in the world. Sadly, so often, our first reaction is not to go to prayer, is not to seek the face of God. But we see here that David has done this immediately. There was a famine for three years. Now, that suggests that he didn't do it immediately. But when it, immediately after it came to his attention that this has been three years now, something's wrong. Something's going on. And he cried unto his God. He sought his face. To find out why. And I believe that I can speak for each one of us here today. That there have been occasions. Many. Throughout our lives. That we have wondered. Why did this happen? How did this happen? What's going on? <coughs> and we did go on our knees. And cry unto God. If he would be pleased to explain to us. To show us. To reveal to us. Why this has taken place? Why is, why is this coming to pass? Why do these people feel the way they do toward me? What's going on? And to pray, to seek God's face, to discover what the cause of this is. We're probably so enmeshed in science and, and, and uh, history and, and other studies. Oh, well, another tsunami. Oh well, another church shooting. Oh well, another hurricane. Oh well, another bombing. That we don't immediately think that nothing happens apart from God. Absolutely nothing happens apart from our God. And it would seem, would it not, to be the natural slash spiritual. In other words, the natural thing for a spiritual person to do. To cry unto God as we see David doing here in this case. Crying, what is it that is bringing or brought about this drought for these three years? And Jehovah said, it is for Saul. Or it's because of Saul and his <coughs> bloody house. Because he put to death the Gibeonites. Again, this is one of those places in the word of God where we have something spoken of. And it's not spoken of anywhere else in the scriptures. We don't know what God is telling David here. But we'll see that evidently David was able to figure it out. But we don't know on the surface what Saul is supposed to have done. But this is God speaking to David and telling him it is for Saul. And those are the primary words, the primary truth for David to Consider it is for Saul. 
And he goes on to say, because he put to death the Gibeonites. That's what's causing this famine. What in the world is the connection between a famine and something that the former king did somewhere, sometime? That's the question that surely would be coming before David. We perhaps think more readily when we think of famine, of the famine in the days of Elijah and Ahab. And what and where recorded is this history, though? This history committed by Saul. When did he put to death the Gibeonites? In fact, who are the Gibeonites? How did this make his house a bloody house? God said it is for Saul. It is because of what Saul did. It's because of his bloody house. Where are we to learn of this? David cried unto God. He sought the face of Jehovah for the answer. And that's, that's what we were learning in Sunday school, was it not? That the scriptures, although we may not understand everything and surely do not understand everything, that that's where the truth is. And David sought the face of Jehovah is God. We have the scriptures. We have to search the scriptures. And in this tech age, this age of technology, high technology, we have something called Bible Gateway that is often a help. It's even an improvement over our Strong's Concordance and so on. We can, we can look up Gibeon night on Bible Gateway. And guess what we find? The very first reference to Gibeonite is 2 Samuel 21.1. Well, that's not much help. That's where we are already. Well, let's try just Gibeon. So we try to find Gibeon and we find out that it refers us to Joshua chapter 9. The first occasion of the use of the term or the name or the title Gibeon is in Joshua's ninth chapter. Let's go ahead then and turn to Joshua 9 and see if we can discover what the issue is that's brought about this famine. Surely it didn't bring it out directly, but it brought it out indirectly by the hand of God from whence all things come. What is it? Give attention, please, as I read from Joshua chapter 9. Verses 3 through 15. I'll try to skip over some verses if it seems appropriate. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that what Joshua had done unto Jericho and to Ai. Now you remember how the Lord delivered Jericho into the hand of Joshua and the children of Israel. By causing the walls to fall down as they were obedient in his instructions to bring that about, marching around the city. And then how they demonstrated that terrible thing, pride, that we heard of somewhat in Sunday school this morning as well. That pride that, oh, Ai's a little one. That's just a little one. That's not nearly as big as Jericho. We don't even need to ask God for any help. Just send 3,000 men out. 
that'll do the job. And they were beaten back, and I think they lost 20 or so, 20 some men killed because of that prideful folly. But that's what's being spoken of here, that these, these inhabitants of Gibeon heard about Joshua and Ai, and they heard how that eventually, when the people followed God's design, that they took Ai as well. So these people, these Gibeonites, it says they, they did work craftily and went and made as if they had been ambassadors. I'm not going to go through all their stratagems and how they made themselves look like they had traveled a long way. But their purpose was to give the impression that they had come a long way, that they weren't among these peoples that they knew that God had given into the hand of Israel. They weren't among them. They had come from a great distance. And that's their strategy that they're using to deceive Joshua and the children of Israel. So we are come, in verse 6, from a far country. Now therefore make ye a covenant with us. They ask him to make a covenant of peace with them. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, that's what the Gibeonites were, were part of the Hivites, peradventure ye dwell among us, and how shall we make covenant with you? We don't even know who you are. So they went on. We are thy servants. They went on telling him uh, these lies. Of course, they were willing to be his servants rather than being slaughtered as Jericho and Ai. So they impress upon them, impress upon them these features about their worn out shoes and their moldy bread and all these things that would demonstrate if they were actually in fact true. They would demonstrate that they had traveled a long distance from a very far country. Thy servants are come because of the name of Jehovah thy God. For we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt. They didn't mention anything about Jericho and Ai. They didn't want them to recognize that they were aware of what had happened because that would suggest that they were living a lot closer. But they told them that they had heard about what God had done in Egypt and so on. Sort of like Rahab telling the two spies that the people of Jericho were aware of what had happened and they had been filled with fear. But these people, these Gibeonites, lied. They lied to Joshua and the children of Israel. And they tell him further that our elders, their elders, and all the inhabitants of our country ask us to take provision in our hand for the journey and go and meet you guys. And say unto them, we are your servants, and now make ye a covenant with us. And so the men of Israel, the princes of Israel, they looked at the provision and they were deceived. They trusted their eyes, their physical eyes. And they were deceived when they saw the worn out shoe, uh, sandals or whatever they were with holes in them. And the mold on the bread, they were deceived by their eyes. And here's one of the keys of this passage. In verse 14, they ask not counsel at the mouth of Jehovah. They ask not counsel at the mouth of Jehovah. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear <coughs> unto them. They made a covenant with them. They believed them. They made peace with them through a covenant. 
And the princes, along with Joshua, swear unto them. And it came to pass at the end of the three day, at the end of three days, as the children of Israel marched on further, and they came upon these cities that belonged to the Gibeonites. Three or four cities. And they basically, to put it in a nutshell, said, hey, what's the deal? You're not anywhere near as far as you pretended. You've lied to us. You've deceived us. Their cities were Gibeon and Shephira and Biriot and kiriath Jerem. But we read in 18, And the children of Israel smote them not. Why didn't they smite them? Hadn't God commanded them to smite all these people? And hadn't they lied to them and deceived them? All the congregation murmured against the princes, but they smote them not because the princes of the congregation, in a little extension here, had sworn unto them by Jehovah, the God of Israel. They had sworn an oath, taking the name of Jehovah their God. They swore unto them that they would not slay them. It was a covenant promise from Israel taking the name of God as an oath for this, the ratifying of this covenant. And all the princes said unto all the congregation, we have sworn unto them by Jehovah, the God of Israel. Now therefore, we may not touch them. They brought them into the community, gave them a, a city of their own to dwell in their midst, but they made them to be carriers of water and, and uh, hewers of wood. They made slaves out of them, virtual slaves, and that was the, their side of that covenant of peace. They became servants, as they had indicated, to the children of Israel. So then, we fast forward back to 2 Samuel. Where God responds to David seeking him, seeking his face, saying it is for Saul and for his bloody house because, because he put to death the Gibeonites. Those people that Israel made a covenant with not to put them to death, not to slay them. Based upon my name, the name of Jehovah their God. But Saul broke that covenant. He put to death the Gibeonites. And this is ratified by the Gibeonites in the second verse that we'll be looking at, Lord willing, next week. But this was the cause. This was what brought the famine on. This was why God brought this drought that caused the famine. For three years until finally the chief representative of Israel on earth, David the king, anointed by God to be king, finally he turned his face unto Jehovah to ask why. And he's told why. We search the scriptures and we find out. And the Gibeonites corroborate that at a later point. 
2 Samuel 21, 2 tells us about the king calling the Gibeonites and getting that corroboration. That's the backstory in Joshua 9, the backstory to this. The reason. And again, referring to Sunday school, we have to search the scriptures to find things out. We don't understand them right on the surface. We have to be Bereans, as somebody brought out. Search the scriptures to find out why, if God is willing to inform us, why is this or that happening? And what are we to do about it? And what are some of the particulars of this arrangement? We already rather highlighted them to some extent. But again, the key is that Joshua and the children of Israel did not ask counsel of Jehovah their God. They did not go to God and ask. We must confess, I'm sure. I must confess, and I'm sure that most of us or all of us must confess that we do things in our daily activities, in our weekly activities. We make decisions. And we don't always remember to ask God, which way would you have me to go? And that's what Joshua and the children of Israel failed to do. They did not ask counsel from Jehovah their God. They did not ask counsel at the mouth of Jehovah. We see in Isaiah, in the 30th chapter, we see what the prophet says here, what God says through the prophet. Woe to the rebellious children, Isaiah chapter 30 in the first verse, saith Jehovah, that take counsel, but not of me, and that make a league, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that set out to go down into Egypt, and have not asked at my mouth. That very sin of children of Israel under Joshua. They did not ask at the mouth of Jehovah what he would have them to do. We read in Leviticus, we read in Leviticus in the 19th chapter of Leviticus, these words that are relevant to this issue. Leviticus 19 in the 12th verse. Ye shall not swear by my name falsely and profane the name of thy God. I am Jehovah. God is a jealous God, he tells us, and he's jealous of his name. The great I am is jealous of his name. And Saul profaned the name of Jehovah when he violated that covenant that was made through an oath in the name of Jehovah, the God of Israel. And in, in what Saul did, he profaned God's name. Therefore, God called for a drought that brought about a famine. Joshua made peace with them, as we've already read. And the children of Israel did not smite them because of that. We have sworn unto them by Jehovah, the God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. They supported that covenant. 
Not as Saul did. He failed. But they, under Joshua, they supported that covenant. They weren't happy with it. They weren't happy, happy because they had been cheated and they were fooled and they knew that they had been fooled and deceived. But they would not violate it. We may not touch them. That goes along with Psalm 15 in verses 1 through 4. Psalm 15 speaks to this matter. And you remember how that Psalm 15 speaks about who shall dwell in thy holy hill. Jehovah, who shall sojourn in thy tabernacle? Who it is that belongs to thee? Who is, who is it that is among thy people? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh truth in his heart. He that slandereth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his friend, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honoreth them that fear Jehovah, he that sweareth to his own hurt, and changeth not. Have you ever made a promise to someone that you saw was foolish afterward? But you knew on the basis of this psalm, that even though it was going to be painful, even though it might cost you something, you were not going to change what you had promised. Why? Did you take the name of God? Not necessarily, but you were presenting yourself as a Christian. The individuals that you were dealing with knew that you were a Christian. You had the name of Christ involved in that transaction. And you can't turn back. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. That's what was going on here in Joshua's day. But Saul, for whatever reason, was going to overthrow that covenant. He was going to profane the name of Jehovah. He was going to go ahead. We're not told how many Gibeonites he killed. Obviously, there were some that survived because there were Gibeonites somewhat later in, in David's reign. So he didn't kill them all, but somewhere along the line. Probably early in his reign as king, as the first king, Saul slew these Gibeonites. And it's recorded, the, the covenant that Joshua made is recorded in Joshua in the ninth chapter. Covenant breaking is what we're looking at. Profaning God's name is what we're looking at. Do we pay our debts? Do we file bankruptcy after we promise to pay a debt? After we've made a contract to pay so much certain times and so on to fulfill this contract as believers in Jesus Christ? Does that not profane the name of Jesus Christ? If these people can say to some one of their fellow workers or another uh, person they deal with, as far as selling and buying or whatever, yeah, yeah, I know that guy. He claimed to be a Christian. He didn't pay up. He broke this contract. That's what Saul did. And that's what we do if we don't maintain our promises, even to our hurt, even if it hurts. Covenant breaking 
has become commonplace in our culture for decades. Where the heck did prenuptials come from with regard to the marriage contract? What in the world is that all about? Marriage licenses, it struck me. Marriage licenses with, with prenups, marriage licenses today come with divorce kits attached to them. Some of them probably even have instructions on how you go about this now. You want to break this covenant you've made of, in marriage? Here's how you do it. Here's the kit. Is this circumstance the same in other covenants and other contracts that people break so lightly and easily? Is this circumstance indeed the same? And we could ask, we could ask the question, how is it that David and the children of Israel were responsible for what Saul and his army did? They are responsible because they are the representatives, not just of the Israelites, but more importantly, they're the representatives of Jehovah God. Covenant breaking has become easy. People just file for bankruptcy, as I've suggested. People just ignore what they have signed, what they have sworn to do. I wonder if this circumstance is the same or similar to this country's treatment of Native Americans. I know we're not supposed to get political, I heard that. And I'm not taking one side or the other, not, not at least openly, but I'm just asking the question, are we responsible as a nation whose representatives signed these treaties and then broke them? Are we obligated to keep those covenant treaties? I've read where Abraham Lincoln signed some of them. Oh boy, that'd spoil a lot of fans of Abraham Lincoln maybe. But there were some, I've also read that there were some 500 treaties made with differing tribes of Native Americans. And there were 500 and some that were broken. They were either broken they were nullified, they were changed, altered. How, do, how, do, how does this text teach us that we are to respond? Are we responsible? There are some that believe we are. I don't have the answer necessarily except it from this text and this behavior sanctioned by God that we'll be looking at. It seems to me that David considered himself responsible and he considered his people responsible for what Saul had done in breaking this covenant, in breaking this promise. David sought immediately the face of Jehovah to seek the answer. And God answered. And it seems like he answered rather swiftly. We're not told. And I know that we of all of us have engaged in prayer with our God 
asking for a solution, for an answer to a question, for which way should I go? Where would you have me to go? And we've looked and read the scriptures and hoping for a, a scripture to be uh, shown to us that it might be the answer that God would have us to take. In other words, we have sought the answer at the mouth. This is the mouth of Jehovah, is it not? We've sought the answer at God's mouth, like David did. We read in Numbers 27, at the appointment of Joshua as successor to Moses, we read, And Jehovah said unto Moses, Take thee, Joshua, the son of Nun, and lay thy hand upon him, and set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and give him a charge in their sight. And thou shalt put of thine honor upon him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before Jehovah, at his word shall they go out, and at his word shall they come in, both he and all the children of Israel with him, even all the congregation. He's turning over the office, if you will. Moses is turning over his office to Joshua. But it's done before the priest, and it's done through the judgment of the Urim. Usually we see the Urim and Thummim together in the scriptures, and we don't know exactly what they were, only that they were used to discover the will of God. And Joshua knew that he was now the leader after Moses of the children of Israel, and he knew that he was responsible for what Israel had covenanted to do, and David, I submit, knew the same thing. He knew that he couldn't break this vow. He knew that according to the testimony from God that Saul had broken this covenant. And that's the reason for the famine. So he had to do something about it. He had to make it right. He had to do something about it. He couldn't leave things as they were. Not only just because we can't take many more years of famine, but because it was the right thing to do. We're told that the immigrants, I'm not talking about the immigrants coming up through Mexico. I'm talking about the immigrants that came to this land in the 15th century and beyond. There was soon a, what, what is called, I, I, I'm told, a doctrine of discovery that the nations employed as their argument. This is our land with the warrant from the Pope, a papal bull, decreeing that this land belongs unto Spain. A, a, a paper from the King of England, or the Queen of England, that this land is discovered for England. And they just basically planted their flag and they claim it was called the Doctrine of Discovery. And it didn't stop there with the East Coast. It didn't stop until they were all the way to the Pacific and they used another legal expression called manifest destiny. Manifest destiny was what was taught that gave them the right, they, they believed, 
to, to take all the land all the way to the Pacific. All the way to the Pacific. Manifest destiny. They took all this land for their own. 500 and some broken treaties. Where did the term Indian giver I haven't heard it for years, so maybe it's not in vogue anymore, but where did the term Indian giver come from? It didn't come from Indians, but from those that gave and then took back. That's how it's used, or how it was used when I was young anyway. Somebody would give you something, then they want it back. Oh, you're an Indian giver. It's the Indians that had things given, treaties, and then taken back. The Indians would like to take back some of the land. But the scales are well against them. And loopholes are sought in contracts. And I'm sure there were many loopholes in those treaties that were found out. Whether they were logical or not didn't matter. The treaty was fine until gold was found until oil was found, until silver was found, then dashed the treaties to pieces. They found loopholes, they found arguments. But we read in Ezekiel, the Lord Jehovah saying to his people, I will deal with thee as thou hast done, who hast despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Matthew Henry says about that passage, no, says God, you have broken covenant with me. You've despised both the promises of the covenant and the obligations of it. You've despised me. You've profaned my name, we could say again. A famine might be brought about because of this not saying because of these broken treatises, that's another issue. I think it's an incredible example. But we know that treaties and contracts and covenants are broken in this country and around the world, I'm sure, but in this country that we're concerned with every day, and it's, all, it's got nothing but worse. Where we may have needed one attorney 25 or 30 years ago for something, now you need 10 of them in order to manage anything. It certainly built them up. Covenant breakers, what's to be done with them? And again in Ezekiel, in similar language, God is saying, for he hath despised the oath. He has despised the oath by breaking the covenant. And behold, he had given his hand and yet done all these things. He shall not escape. He had given his hand. That's in Ezekiel. That's in the Old Testament. People shook hands, it sounds like. <clears throat> we shake hands. But this is talking about a contract when you didn't even have to draw one up. You didn't even have to go get one lawyer to draw up a contract. You just said it, and that's the way it was, and you shook hands on it, and that sealed the deal. Not anymore. 
You can have a contract with 40 or 50 pages of fine print. And that doesn't necessarily seal the deal. But the, the lesson here for the people of God, for the children of Jehovah is that our word is to be our bond. The name of Jehovah is to be our bond, the name of our God, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Acting, behaving as believers, the believers that we are. We should take care about these things because we represent the Lord Jesus Christ in the front of our neighbors. Before our acquaintances, our associates, we represent Jesus Christ we represent his Father, the God of heaven and earth, the creator of, creator of all things. We are his representatives. A famine might come because of the behavior of this land. A famine might come. We read in Amos 8.11, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord Jehovah, that I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of Jehovah. A famine of hearing the words of Jehovah. I can remember in my early years as a believer receiving some false understandings. I can remember people talking about this and, and, and they're, they're talking about we have, to, we have to hoard Bibles. We have to get a bunch of Bibles. And of course they meant King James. We had to get a bunch of Bibles and we have to have them because there might come a famine. But I looked at that after a short while and I said, but the famine is not of Bibles. The famine is of hearing. It's hearing. How many people do we read about in the New Testament that Christ said, you can't, you don't hear, you can't hear what I'm saying. You can utter the words. You can quote the Bible to people, but they don't hear because hearing has been taken away. You ever tried to, we've all tried to talk with unbelievers. They can't hear. They won't hear because they can't. They can't hear because they won't. There is indeed I would submit there is a famine of the hearing of the word of God in our land today. People just don't want to hear it and they won't hear it. Who has given the hearing ear? Who has given it? Remember what God told Isaiah in Isaiah 6, that vision that he had and God told him, go and tell this people after he said, who shall I send? And Isaiah said, I'll go. He said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn again and be healed. They can't hear. And it's like that today, among so many. Even here in the Bible Belt, right? Even, even right here at the buckle of the Bible Belt. It's right. It's true. It's sad. They don't hear what the Word says. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, Jehovah hath made even both of them. He hath made both of them. 
That's the other side of what he told Isaiah, that this people can't hear. He's the one that gives hearing. The hearing ear and the seeing eye Jehovah hath made even both of them, and he can take them away just as easily. We read in the beginning of 1 Samuel in the third chapter about the calling of Samuel and so on, but we read in the child Samuel in the first verse of three, ministered unto Jehovah before Eli, and the word of Jehovah was precious or rare in those days. There was no frequent or widely spread vision or oracle. It was precious in those days. Is it precious in these days? Is it precious in our days? Do we hold it precious? I trust that we all do because it is precious. It is precious. A wonderful gift from our Father in heaven through the blood of the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Should we not be crying unto God to bring showers of blessing with renewed hearing of his word, making many through revival to be able to hear the word of God that have turned their backs on him, that have closed their ears to him, We no longer have the Urim and the Thummim. We have much better. We have him who is grace and truth. We don't need the Urim and Thummim. We have him who is grace and truth. Let us pray. Oh, Father, our God, we ask that thou would continue with us, continue thy patience toward us, Continue thy forbearance, thy loving kindness, and build us up in the truth, O Lord of God. Never let us take for granted the scriptures. Never let us take for granted thy grace and mercy. Never let us take for granted, God, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Oh, may we cherish thy word. May we thank thee every day that thou hast been pleased to make it a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. You'd stand for the benediction. It's taken from 1 John chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. My little children, guard yourselves from idols. Amen.